I'm Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Borana of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello and welcome to the On Air podcast, or welcome back if you are indeed a prior listener. We are obviously going to be looking at Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's tour of the Caribbean, but we thought, you know, just to get us started with a nice light topic, we were going to start by looking at the topic of colonialism. So I think this is a topic that we also touched on a little bit in episode three and the start of episode four. It has come, obviously, from the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's visit. A kind of overshadowing uh, conversation was about the historical relationship between the British royal family and the form and the colonies, the former colonies, and what that relationship means for the present and what it means for the future. You can't really talk about this tour and ignore that situation. But I also would like to say that we are two white British people in terms of this conversation. We are probably not the people you should be listening to first. (laughs) I really didn't learn anything about the slave trade or the colonies or the empire or anything like that in school. And so I think that for a lot of people who are listening to this, There might be a kind of thing of like, well, why does this matter for royalty? Why, why, how does royalty actually relate to um, slavery? Queen Elizabeth I, she was kind of constantly in dispute with Spain um, and trying to get a leg up on them economically. And so she allowed, I think his name was Richard Hawkins. She allowed him to go out and sort of steal a Spanish or Portuguese ship, sell the people and the goods that they had on the ship and see what happened. And they brought in so much money that she began granting licenses, which were needed in order to do these expeditions um, and funding expeditions uh, for various other people, uh, which kind of kicked off England's involvement in in the slave trade. Um, I'm not going to go through the entire history because it's very long and I am by no means an expert, but from sort of the 17th century, that's when things started to get a little bit more organized and they set up organizations to Uh, run the slave trade essentially like the Royal African Company and these organizations were very complex networks of investors and traders but the royals were key so they were established in the name of the king and one of the key conversations one of the key talking points is this idea that the current British royals essentially are rich because of the slave trade and while it's very difficult to track this money and it went to a lot of different people and it's diluted and you know all the you, we can't say definitively this percentage of their wealth came from the slave trade i think if you look back at the history it is undeniable that some of the royal family's wealth today will have come from the slave trade i think i i mean i i live in bristol and i've grown up in bristol so i've always had a background knowledge of slavery from edward colston I always find it really interesting because we learned about Edward Colston and how, you know, he did good things for the city. And and then, you know, as we got older, that also became, but the money he did that from came from slavery, from uh, slaves in the West Indies, particularly. Um, and then later on again, when I did my own research, I found, you know, that Edward Colston, the person he gave most of his money to was William of Orange, who was King William III, or William and Mary, that William. So even just that one person gave the most of his money to the king, and not because it was tax, not because it was, at that point, that's what he had to do, even though I'm sure there were also taxes. Like, that was a choice, 
And if you think about it in terms of the current royal family, because there's lots of people going, well, the royal families have changed lots and lots over, you know, the centuries. And the wealth that has gone into the royal family, that wealth hasn't left the royal family. It's not gone to other people. So even if, you know, you're saying Queen Elizabeth II herself hasn't been involved, her sort of ancestry has used that money. You know, the, the bigger conversation really is about what you do with that situation. I, but I think that you have to start from a position of acknowledgement of sort of when people say things like, well, you know, nobody nowadays is keeping anybody as a slave. And it's like, yeah, that's right. William did not personally start the slave trade. But I think you have to start with acknowledgement of that situation. Otherwise, you're never really going to get anywhere. They are not the only royal family with these links. A huge amount of focus falls on the British royal family, and I, I believe that that is warranted, but I think that other royal families get off very, very easy and should probably, the scrutiny on them should probably rise to the level of the Brits. Yeah, the two I wrote down as well were Belgium and Spain. Belgium, we talked about in episode three, and they were actively interfering with, as a royal family, were actively interfering with African affairs well into the 60s. But even some of the countries that I think are maybe slightly softer or people don't think think of as very progressive now like Denmark Denmark was very active in the slave trade um Sweden had a slave trade they had overseas colonies the royal family of Sweden descended from a French soldier the French soldier was was given the role of king of Sweden by Napoleon who reinstated slavery in France's overseas territories but he set up an investment portfolio and that still exists and the Swedish royal family still received money from that investment portfolio set up by Napoleon um, who reinstated slavery to fund his own initiatives. It's, it's clear why the British family, uh, royal family have that focus on them, because they are the most well-known and popular royal family in the world. And I mean, there's always that kind of infamous statistic that the British Empire governed one third of the world or something at one point. So I, th- I think it's very clear that no matter where you stand on this conversation, it is undeniably true that people today still benefit from... The slave trade. I think that takes us on nicely to kind of, well, what do people want to do about this situation? If we if we all agree that this is the position, that they do benefit, that it's not their fault, but that they do benefit from this, where do we go from there? And there tends to be sort of two things that, that people ask for. So there's apologies and there's reparations. I think in terms of apologies, most royals have gone the direction that William went in this tour that Charles has gone in in previous tours where they've said wasn't slavery terrible but they have never apologized it is actually it's always quite rare not saying this is right but for a country or you know a head of state to apologize for something that happened in the past quite recently the northern Irish government apologized to some of their citizens who in the 90s um, had been abused in care homes some children And that was a big deal. That was like headline newsworthy. You know, anyone, Boris Johnson, Joe Biden, they will all come out and go, yes, the slave trade was bad. And we all agree with that. And that's fair. But then when you ask a politician or a royal to then apologise, there's a reluctance that seems to sort of immediately come up. The defence that is given to them when they make that kind of weak apology um, is that, well, they weren't personally involved. But I think it's always important to remember that No one who is asking for an apology is sitting there going, well, Prince William needs to apologise for his part in the slave trade because no one out there believes Prince William was involved in the slave trade. 
it is on behalf of the country he will one day be head of state of for their actions to the people of their country, to their ancestors. All of my ancestors were most likely Irish peasants who had no <laughs> like say in any of this. It is these people who have kind of, for whatever reason, a status as being a representative of their particular country. You know, one day I would like to see an apology, but I also think that you have to balance it with democracy. Our royals are not elected. They are nonpartisan. If a royal made an apology like that without consulting with the government, that would be pushing our, the running of our country in an undemocratic direction, which I would not really appreciate. So it's not that I don't want to see this apology. It's not that on any level I think that it's not necessary or that I disagree with it. It's just that they, they as royals cannot just say what they want I would want it to be something that is handled very very carefully in line with the rules that a royal has to follow ultimately yeah definitely I think you know when the queen makes one of those big political speeches her speech isn't written by her those times she does make a big public comment on something those speeches are written by other people who are working with the government so no matter what she is saying it has to follow the government's line. And I think like we spoke about when we spoke about the Ukrainian refugees, how this is it's a situation where every political party is in agreement that we should help Ukrainian refugees. So the royals can just go full out and get involved. Every political par uh, party in, in Britain is in agreement that slavery is bad, but they're not all in agreement that they should apologise for it. You know, it's kind of to use actually a, quite a relevant situation. A few years ago, um, Prince Charles said at an engagement something about how terrible Putin was. And I think this was quite a difficult thing for people who do not live in a monarchy, particularly a British, the British monarchy, to really understand. Um, but I was really annoyed by that. And I think people were like, oh, well, does that mean you like Putin? And I was like, no, of course not. But what I was what I'm saying is that it's not for them to say this because that is not their job. And so I do hope one day we get to a point where we can see an actual apology that means something. But I think I've seen a lot of criticism around them not giving it. And I just think that people need to remember that there's also another country with a democracy that you know we kind of want to safeguard. And so that has to be considered. And so really direct it towards the government if you kind of want an apology and then the royals will be able to follow from that. And I think it's the same with reparations no royal family in that functions in a democracy no constitutional monarchy can make a decision on that of anything really but particularly on that scale to give reparations to another country i think you know if we think back to the end of world war one when germany was made to pay reparations it was sort of the european community as a result of the actions of germany in the world war one said you need to pay the reparations and something like the slave trade it wasn't one country. It wasn't Britain or Sweden or Belgium single-handedly running the slave trade. It was a big interconnected group. So if one day Britain turned around and said, yes, we're going to give reparations, all those other countries who were involved are suddenly put on a kind of high alert to also do the same thing. And it is a, it's a, um, like a diplomatic discussion that needs to happen between different countries before anything of that scale, I think, ever would happen. We did give, I suppose, kind of reparations to the slave traders, um, which is just bonkers. 
where when we ended the slave trade in Britain, we basically slave traders were like, well, this is a loss of my earnings. So you have to compensate me. And the British government did in order to be able to get approval to, to put the law in place, because otherwise it probably wouldn't have passed. Um, but the interest on that pay on those payments is so large that everybody who paid tax in the UK before 2015, which includes myself, contributed towards paying off the debt from compensating slave owners. And so I feel like this is this wasn't just the royals, though they are part of it. It was a network of a lot of rich people who have a lot of descendants in a lot of countries. Could you argue that millions of people in the UK would also be complicit in it and be sort of have to give their share of the reparations? It just doesn't make it. I think it would just be too messy to be targeting people on an individual level. And maybe that is wrong. You know, maybe the whole point of it is that it should be the people who earned the money who give the money back. But I just think that's a very messy thing to achieve. The royals are actually not as rich as people think. So, I mean, there have been requests in the trillions for reparations and the royals don't have anywhere near that. So you won't get what you want, even if they did give reparations. And I think there is, a, it's, a, it's slightly different, but there is a history of some level of reparations from the British government. There was $25 million, which was given to Kenyans who are part of, who were sort of uh, oppressed in um in the Mau Mau uprisings and that was in the 1950s and it was an uprising against colonialism against British power in Kenya so there is some history it's very, it's different because it is one specific event um, perpetrated by one country and most some of the people who were involved would still have been alive but I think there is no history of any like royal family giving reparations to anybody so if I if I was thinking strategically it would make more sense to target them because I think it would it's going to be a hard battle but there's more chance of it happening it's 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 a complicated issue because reparations is normally the thing that causes the issue with people because I think if you went to anyone on the street and said oh do you think slavery is bad I think everyone would go oh yes obviously but then if you go to the average person on the street and go and should you pay for that they're like, wait, what? I, I don't own a slave. And I mean, you know, I don't know where I personally stand on the issue of reparations. I think, you know, we definitely, as a country, Britain does owe the countries that they took slaves from because Britain has became incredibly wealthy off the back of that. But the people who were the ones who were suffering and the people who would suffer more if reparations were taken from Britain aren't those rich people. It's the people who already live below the poverty line because taxes would go up. And I think there's a reason why reparations so rarely happen, because when they do happen, it can cause such an impact. I mean, I, I'm not to bring up the war again. Obviously, the reparations given to Germany after World War One had a very sort of heavy hand in pushing Germany towards the far right in time for World War Two. Um, like it's a direct correlation. Um, and I'm not going to say that if we suddenly started paying reparations to Jamaica, that Britain would start World War Three. <laughs> but I'm saying that it is, yeah, it's a bigger issue than just saying like, yes, we all agree it's bad. Yes, this is how much we took from Jamaica at the time, and this is how much we owe them, because it will have, it can have such a big knock-on effect on everything else. I read a book called Homegoing, and it's by um, I'm not, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, and I do apologise. Uh, Yah Gayasi, they're a, Ghan a Ghanaian American author. 
And I would highly recommend reading it because it starts off in Ghana uh, with two characters who are sisters, but they don't, they never meet each other because they, they were born to different fathers. And uh, this was sort of pre-slavery in Ghana that it starts. And one of them ends up being sort of taken as a slave. The other one ends up kind of being like a, I suppose, like a, the daughter of a chief or something of the tribe. Um, and so has a very high status and they're quite close to the British and it tracks their family through the generations right up until the present day. And each chapter is a story is one generation. And the reason I recommend this book um, is that my view was always like, well, the situation now, the economic situation for black people, that's a result of different things. Like it's not really related to slavery. But this book, because it's written in a way that you have one chapter for each generation, you can see how the family that sort of it started with slavery, how each generation impacts the next one and how ultimately it can all be traced back to that one situation where these two sisters and their lives diverged. I would recommend reading that book as kind of understanding how that situation still impacts on people today and still shapes people's lives today. Particularly in not to get really political, but in a capitalist society where there is this real push for you are your own person, you have Mm -hmm. to succeed Mm -hmm. and you have to push yourself forward. You know, in the news and in the sort of society, if we talk about poor people in Britain, there is always that underlying like, ooh, look at this person. She was on the streets and now she's a millionaire selling cheese or something. And there are all those stories. And it's like, well, if she can do it, why can't these poor families? But I, I think that whatever happens these conversations should probably if you want to be successful should probably be directed at the government and I understand why they're happening because the royals are there but I also think that you're never going to get what you want from the royals because even if they gave you every penny they have it would not be enough by even a tiny fraction. It's interesting that um, when people particularly western people talk about this issue they say colonialism but what they actually mean is countries involved in the slave trade because they never talk about Canada or Australia or, you know, Scotland when they do this, because all those places were all colonised by England. But the when people think about it, they don't think colonisation, they think slave trade. And I think those two terms get interchanged quite a bit. I think you make a really good point there about, like, yeah, colonies and slave trade are slightly different things. And then I think there's also something that gets thrown in the mix um, of this conversation, and sometimes people don't necessarily understand what it is, is the Commonwealth. We talk about colonialism a lot, and a colony is essentially somewhere where a country has invaded another country. That's the dictionary definition. They take land that not previously belonged to them. You think of the British Empire as being like this big colonial thing. But over the years, obviously, colonialism to that extent doesn't necessarily happen on that scale anymore. And then over the years, what's happened is countries have gained their independence from the Queen. So you end up with countries where uh, Queen Elizabeth II is head of state but they are no longer governed by Britain they have their own government their own way of life and that's where these places like Jamaica and Belize and uh, the Bahamas fall in and then you get the next step which is what these countries are starting to talk about which is a republic which is what happened with Barbados or you know if you look at somewhere like India or Congo from uh, Belgium they are where the queen is no longer their head of state and they are completely separate countries and a word that kind of gets thrown around a lot when we talk about this is commonwealth because I think the 
countries where the queen is the head of state but are independent from britain are known as commonwealth realms but the commonwealth itself isn't necessarily um a colonial is a colonial throwback but not in the same way as sort of the issue of a uh, constitutional monarchy versus a republic is because the commonwealth initially came about when the british empire were like gosh this is a bad look for us we're gonna need to rebrand um, <laughs> and they took over <laughs> and then india became independent in the 40s but they said hang on a sec we're a big big fan of independence we do want to be in charge we don't want you to be anything to do with us but we would still like to be in the commonwealth please um so the commonwealth they were saying like hang on this is a really great idea let's just turn it into this sort of big family worldwide thing we now have countries in the Commonwealth, like Rwanda, which were never in the British Empire, they were colonised by Britain. They were have been completely separate and have chosen to join it. Um, and the thing I think that the Commonwealth nations and the Commonwealth realms are different is that, you know, the Commonwealth realms are constitutional democracies with a constitutional monarchy. But the Commonwealth is a democracy. It is a voted process to be the head of the commonwealth it gets thrown around a lot like oh people want to leave the commonwealth um we shouldn't be in this it's a colonial throwback but i think the point is at any point anyone could leave the commonwealth and a lot of countries choose to join it i mean barbados who became a republic so recently have explicitly said they would still be in the commonwealth um and there doesn't ever seem to be the push to leave that although it gets sort of conflated with these issues of reparations and republicanism I hate to say that I agree with Richard Palmer, <laughs> but he did post something about how he personally doesn't think that the royals are really that fussed about remaining in charge of these, like Jamaica and these other countries. What they're interested in is being able to keep the Commonwealth connection so that these countries are essentially aligned to the West. They don't essentially are trying to keep them on side rather than having them go and join forces with China and Russia and these other countries, which are obviously going to jump in immediately and try and get them to side with them. Um, and I actually kind of agree with that. I think that the royals in this day and age very much are not like begging the Jamaican people or the people of Belize to try and keep them as the head of state. I think they just want to keep this Commonwealth connection because it is actually in an advantageous political thing like the queen is the queen of jamaica separately from being the queen of the uk so it doesn't actually impact on the uk in any way if she is no longer the queen of another country if jamaica left the commonwealth that would might be a different conversation when um they last had the commonwealth heads of government meeting and they voted on who was going to be the next sort of leader after the queen which was a bit you know in advance but you do you commonwealth um <laughs> and the queen was like i definitely think you should pick my son charles isn't he lovely um, that was a real sign of how important the Commonwealth is. Um, and at any point, you know, when Charles, you know, they vote for the next Commonwealth, it could be anyone. It might not be William. It could be, you know, the Prime Minister of Jamaica. It could be the Prime Minister of Belize. It could be the President of Rwanda. I don't know who it's going to be. If we talk a little bit about this specific um, tour. So what I think is that if you actually just, if you strip away everything and you just look at what happened in belize in jamaica and in the bahamas i actually think everybody was very mature and polite and well behaved and you know <laughs> people exercised their democratic right to protest 
which happens here. If the royals go to certain places, they will get people who come out and protest. There is a group set up to try and make the UK a republic. There were also, you know, screaming people happy to see them and take photographs with them. They're all of the the politicians were very polite. Um, they talked about, about some difficult things, but they I, I personally didn't feel that they were rude about it. Uh, I think William and Kate have also done well. They've been smiling and happy and they've, um, you know, been very personable. Uh, hasn't They haven't really behaved in a way that's been any different from previous tours. Um, it's really when you get to social media and the mainstream media as well, where, things kind of explode slightly yeah like not to sound like my mum but like social media is an awful invention <laughs> <laughs> but this very much was a platinum jubilee tour of the queen's commonwealth realms like that was the point of it it was quite explicitly stated that that's what it was for um and that's what it was like they went to the queen's commonwealth realms they did some touristy things that they do on every tour when those topics came up when there were protests they just happened. I mean, I think like you, I mean, at royal weddings, there were protests. And also, if you look back at previous royal tours to Jamaica in particular, the same things have happened again. Like prime ministers and politicians have come out and said, we'd like to be a republic, please. And thank you. When you actually watch what happened, it was sudden, but nothing dramatic or upsetting or rude. And then the reaction on the internet was like, either depending on where you look either that you know the jamaican prime minister is the cruelest most horrible person in the world who planned this entire tour specifically to upset william and to mock him and this was all about william or that um william and kate have planned a tour to hurt the people of the caribbean and in the process have been shocked by the fact they've had to come up against some people who don't like the monarchy it is the takes are so wild (laughs) The thing that um, I find really irritating about the situation is that when people are suggesting that Jamaicans could only possibly want to become a republic because of William and Kate and not because they actually are free thinking people who have their own ideas about their identity and their future and and want to have a say and and that it's a bigger thing. I think that's quite insulting. Yes, I think, you know, was a real sort of undertone of the fact that William and Kate should have turned up and said, gosh, you should all be republics. Um, but it kind of insinuated that the only way any of these countries would become a republic would be if the British royal family let them. And it's like, that's not right for a start. And also it's not fair to the people of those countries who have the democratic right to choose whatever they like. And it is up, it's up to, it's certainly not up to a British man who can't even vote in Jamaica. I was like, I get what you're saying. And I get why you're being like, oh, it would be really good for him to do this. And it sounds up, but that's not his job. That would be verging on a dictatorship if he goes into countries and is like, this is how you should govern. People sort of were framing this as like, this is a tour where they are going to come and try and convince Jamaica to stay. You know, while they make a lot of mistakes when it comes to these conversations, I don't think any of them are stupid or arrogant enough to think that one visit could change people's minds. In Jamaica, they have been very clear about the fact that a lot of people in Jamaica would like to be in public for at least the last 10, 15 years. If you look at where the royals are going this year, it's like they're visiting all but one of the Caribbean islands that are Commonwealth realms. And I imagine in the autumn, 
we'll see those other places get visits as well. No, the people in Jamaica and Belize and uh, the Bahamas were involved in planning the tour. And if there was something they didn't like at any point, they could have said, no, we don't like that. We're not okay with this. A lot of the conversations on all sides of the spectrum make me uncomfortable for different reasons. I think there are some people who have been just downright rude to Jamaicans who are just protesting their, their democratic right to protest. But then on the other side, I also am really uncomfortable with people acting like these countries are homogenous. And, you know, we saw that. We talked last week about the Indian Creek protest. And then another group of people from Indian Creek came out and said, oh, no, we really want them here. We, didn't, we weren't part of this at all. It was nothing to do with us. And like they are not any more homogenous than us. I'm not a monarchist. In an ideal world, I would not want the UK to be a monarchy. Um, but I like Kate. I think she does great work. And I like looking at things she wears and what she does. I can separate the system from the people. And so why would we assume that people in other countries can't do that? Yes, and I definitely think there's a, um, a tendency for people who have never been to the Caribbean, who have got nothing to do with it, to think they, they I mean, I know we are doing this right now, but to <laughs> kind of interject their opinion and speak over um, the people of those, of those countries, who quite frankly are the people whose voices matter the most. And I think at any point, you should always defer to the people who are actually being affected by this. And in this case, it is the public citizens of, and the private citizens of uh, Belize, uh, Jamaica and the Bahamas. So now that we've talked a bit about colonialism, um, we thought that we would do a little bit of a deep dive into the tour itself and what we liked, what we didn't like. Um, And we won't be covering every single engagement because it was ridiculously long to do that. So um, we'll just be kind of picking up on some of our favourite ones and talking about how the tour went as it it went along. Day two was their festival day in uh, Belize and they visited the uh, Chael Mayan cacao farm and chocolate factory. It felt like a really solid start to a, a tour in a foreign country where they go and do something and they get to eat some chocolate after t- several years of pandemics like this is a royal tour we're back we're back in business. I was very jealous of them getting to do that because I went to Borneo and we spent a little bit of time in the jungle and one part was I got given um, the cacao seed thing um that's kind of covered in fruit that you're, you lick off and it is the nicest thing I've ever had in my entire life and they don't like sell it in the supermarket here obviously I had it like 12 years ago and every single day since I've been like oh I just wish I could have that because it's so tasty so I'm very jealous that they got to have that I mentioned this last week but at school we're doing our fair trade topic during the week of the tour like the start of the week we were doing interviews and we were really focusing on a man called Justino Peck who uh, is, lives in Belize and is um, a fair trade farmer. And I've taught this lesson several times now. I've taught it for like three years and I was teaching it. And obviously the first time I've said the word Belize and it's actually like registered with me. And I was like, oh, look at this. Isn't it all coming together? So I was vibing at the start of the week, quite frankly. Um, and then they went into um, Hopkins Village more, which is where they met the um, Garifuna people. They are terrible at dancing, both of them. Um, it, it kind of makes me feel happier because Kate is like beautiful and artistic and smart and rich and it doesn't really seem fair 
but she can't dance. So <laughs> there's something that she can't do. And that I'm very happy about that. I would absolutely hate this. This is why I could never be a royal. Not just because I don't really agree with it in principle, but also because the idea of dancing in front of people, it is literally my idea of hell on earth to dance in front of people. It's especially for British people who are very repressed and awkward. Um, dancing like that is quite a difficult thing. So um, I think that, you know, they were really game to join in and uh, try the food and dance and they got a very, very warm reception. Yeah, I feel like it did what it was supposed to do, which was make the, you know, promote the kind of the Garifuna people and their culture. And like you said, it felt like everyone um, was very happy during that engagement. And there's a lot of pictures that they've even released later of them all being like kind of like hugging or with their arms around each other. And it, it, it does look like that seemed to be a really sort of like a high point for them. Then we move on to day three. They were, they started off, well, Google tells us it's Caracol National Monument Res- Reservation. That doesn't sound right to me, but either way, they went there. They compared it to like the Buckingham Palace of um, Belize back in the Mayan era. Um, and I really love these kinds of engagements, you know, kind of what we were talking about um, last week is kind of uh, why we really enjoy getting to see things that we wouldn't normally get to see. And I'm very unlikely to go to Belize. And if I do go, I'm probably not going to go to somewhere that requires like a lot of walking and steps. So I got to see it without actually having to pay any money or do any exercise. I I really enjoyed it. And I thought, you know, they took a guide with them from um, the Institute of Archaeology who told them all the like historical stuff. So they didn't just like have a look around and be like oh isn't this a pretty rock like they learned things and it was giving very like Tomb Raider Lara Croft kind of vibes to me with Kate in that kind of casual outfit going up the stairs yeah I think I always think you know the Mayans are really interesting but when they do these kind of historical historical engagements they've got to be careful not to like lean into sort of costume territory and and that kind of vibe and it didn't they did a really good job of being like learning about the past and also doing something that they enjoy, which is clearly going on long hikes. Yeah. Um, and then uh, they moved on to a training session with the British Army Training Support Unit. And this was a nice engagement because it was slightly more personal than some of the other ones because uh, William trained with them about 20 years ago and he was reunited with the person who trained him. You know, that doesn't mean he gets to stay on as the monarch, but he does actually have some, you know, sometimes it feels like when they're going to these these Commonwealth realms, which um, they still theoretically, you know, they're, his grandmother is the head of state for. It's like, it really is glaring, gl- glaringly obvious that they have no connection to this place, really. They don't know anything about it. Um, whereas at least on this engagement, it showed that, you know, William had experience of uh, working alongside people from Belize in the past. So I, I liked that. Yeah, and it was one of those, it was one of the private engagements. So it essentially, it happened and because they were still stuck in a jungle, they couldn't release photos till later. And even though they were pressed there, most of the photos released that weren't released by Cape, like by Kensington Palace came from um, local photographers, which I imagine was a choice that was made between, you know, the royals and the government and the government of Belize. Yeah, um, and then um, we got to the first kind of evening reception of the tour. Um, which was being held in honour of the Queen's Passing of Jubilee. Um, but it was held at, um, I'm going to pronounce this wrong again, I think it's like Cahal Peck, uh, 
which is another sort of Mayan historical site. Oh yeah, it was very an Instagrammable location. It was absolutely stunning. Take some of like a like a glowing orb in the background, like a light or a torch or something. Um, and William also gave his first and also least exciting suite of the tour, where he was just like, "Big fan, big fan. Thanks for thanks for having us. Lovely country." It felt suitable for what they'd done on the prior two and a half days. It suited the the Belize tour part of it. I think there were some other like lovely anecdotes from conversations with the guests and things. So like um, around the children in particular and about how, you know, they tell them where they're going and they put pins in the map so that they can kind of, kind of follow along with where their parents are going. And, you know, that was very sweet, very Cambridge to tell random anecdotes about the kids. People probably didn't even ask, but they just bring them up at every opportunity. So, um, <laughs> you know, that, that was a nice little moment as well that we got to hear about. Because it was outside, I think everyone was, you, you had like your caterers were there, not like downstairs somewhere. So it all felt very like mingly. And the Belize part of the tour in general, I think was great. If it had stopped there, it would have been a great tour. <laughs> it would have been 10 out of 10. It was, yeah, it was, it had a good sort of range of engage, like types of engagements. They seemed to get on well. Yeah, everyone seemed happy. But yeah, they left um, Billy's at like about half 11, like they like to do every day. And then they turned up in Jamaica and that was where they met Lisa Hannah. Um, and I think most of my notes about their arrival was about Lisa Hannah and about the kind of sort of immediate controversy that came from nothing as soon as they stepped foot in Jamaica. Because that nothing happened at the airport, apart from the fact it was a bit windy. I was bracing myself for a whole bunch of like, oh, Kate should put weights in the hem of her dress. And no, they went straight for like snub. And I was like, okay, we've got a different direction. It was it was just a very strange thing because nobody behaved poorly. Nobody was rude to one another. Um, it was just a like fraction of a second that has kind of been manipulated by lots of different people for lots of different reasons. It it doesn't make Kate look good. It doesn't make Lisa look good. Uh, and it's completely fabricated. And I'm glad that Lisa kind of went on the record and sort of said, I'm a, I'm, I'm a politician and I'm very capable and I know how to talk to people, even if I don't necessarily want them to lead my country. Like, I know how to be a diplomat. And it started things off with a sort of certain tone that wasn't there in Belize, even though Belize is still in a very in a fairly similar situation to Jamaica. Yeah, it was really weird because, like you said, Belize and Jamaica, in terms of their approach to republicanism, are very, very similar. And then we get to Jamaica and it was so, like, the tonal shift was so quick in the media coverage and the social media sort of coverage. And I think, you know, like, I read through Lisa Hannes, I read through her Twitter thread, I read through her article, and she, she was using phrases like, you know, like, pleasant exchanges and amicable. And she said, you know, quite specifically, like, she's got nothing but respect for the Duchess of Cambridge. However by making this an issue you are covering the bigger issue which is justice for the Jamaican people and I feel like I said this last week when I said by turning their protest about uh, flora fauna international into a protest about the monarchy which it wasn't um, you're covering the actual issue uh, by putting your own kind of opinion on there and I feel like this was happening again and it was quite sort of gratifying to see the woman involved and the politician involved speak out about it because obviously she's the one who probably had to physically or emotionally deal with a lot of the kind of baggage that would get held her way. It kind of laid the groundwork for how the entire tour would kind of play out. Um, but then they went they went to uh, Trenchtown 
um, for a surprise engagement. And I think someone told the Royal Reporters that Usain Bolt was going to be there because they mentioned him so much. But it felt like it was a sport and cultural event. And it felt very Cambridge in the fact that there was football. They played the drums. They did the bobsleigh team. Raheem Sterling was there. This is where I kind of noticed the shift in their their kind of approach, not just to social media, but also to generally how they interacted with people. Um, because like they posted a selfie um, of them with the bobsleigh team on their social media, um, but they were also like stopping with people and taking selfies and letting them take photographs. And they don't like post, post selfies on their social media. They're not... Um, allowing people who are just in a room with them to take photographs uh, that would just never happen but they seem to like have consciously made a decision to be like a little bit more relaxed and maybe let something slide that they that you know in the UK their security would probably jump in. There seemed to be so many people there and they all seemed to want to see what was going on and it seemed very frantic in a very warm and sort of happy way and there seemed to be so much energy about it and I remember I read I think it might be a BBC News article um, and the reporter wrote that um, obviously it was all very sort of loud anyway and then William and Kate arrived and the cheers got really 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 loud and people were chanting like William Kate and then Raheem Sterling around arrived and the, he said the screams just went like through the roof yeah. <laughs> and there was sort of chanting for William and Kate but it was Raheem Sterling who was like the man yeah yeah, yeah. and I just felt like it felt like you know like a, like a rock concert when everyone is just like high on energy and it felt like a really what should have been a really wholesome event and then it wasn't so William and Raheem Sterling and Leon Bailey who is a uh, place for Aston Villa which is William's team uh, they played a football match against some Jamaican people and they were on two teams and it's all very lovely it was a very happy event and obviously it being a football match the football pitch was enclosed in fences like they are and around the outside was a lot of young children in particular who clearly come to watch and were clinging onto the fences um, and at the end of the football match William and Catherine and people like Raheem Sterling and the ministers from Jamaica and Leon Bailey went over and shook hands with the children and the photos were released and the photos were cut in a way so it looked like William and Kate were shaking hands through a cage with lots of you know tiny little black children's arms sticking out and if that wasn't an awful photo <laughs> I don't know what was and the PR disaster storm that came from that picture but I feel like that just took what had already been a bit of an iffy start and went and you are going to have the worst possible time in Jamaica that we are going to paint you out to have that is possible you know it could have been something that they like waved at them from the distance or they went around the fence or something like that you know they, there's probably an alternative that they could have done you know I saw an image from I think it was Harry's tour but I'm not 100% sure of like there were soldiers with guns um in front of the fences stopping the children from coming through so it's like it's not that this is new um to have children behind a fence yeah I found one of Diana from like the 80s shaking hands with like Asian women for a fence and it's not like it's a brand new uh, thing that's ever happened it was just one of those things where they'd already had the Lisa Hannah situation people ran with it and so I think there was this attitude that like oh, oh my god isn't this you know even the conservative press have turned on Kate and William this is you know, this is such an indictment of how terribly they've done on the tour and blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's what it was. I think it was about they knew that that would be the thing that would get people to click. But I do think that they could have just waved and that would have been a lot easier, you know. Yeah, I wrote down that I was like, the photos were a gaff, and I always associate the word gaff with Boris Johnson. But um, Philip. that's what they were. Yeah, or, yeah, or Philip. 
um because I was like did I think it was the right decision in terms of William and Kate meeting the people who'd been stood there and were desperate to meet them like yes of course I did I thought that was a really good thing and clearly it brought a lot of joy to those people for that moment um but it could have been and it should have been of someone somewhere with eyes should have gone go round the side and meet them or oh, we'll wave here and you know or we'll bring them in you know something that could have been I, I can even see you know William and Kate getting caught up in the moment of it because they weren't the only people who went over and shook hands so I can imagine them just being like oh we'll go and say hi um but someone should have gone trust me come with me and we'll meet them in a minute because there were a lot of people there like all the press all the you know the communications team at Kensington Palace their secretaries were there someone somewhere should have gone yeah before we do this we're just gonna we're gonna adjust it a bit and that's the end of day one in Jamaica (laughs) yeah I know (laughs) oh goodness um so then we moved on to the second day of the tour in Jamaica so they started off with a meeting with the Prime Minister of Jamaica and his wife where the Prime Minister essentially said you know in the future Jamaica is going to look at being getting rid of the Queen it was slightly awkward I like I feel like that was a conversation you should have been sitting down for yeah they were all still like walking in the room when he started the conversation I kind of feel like he was like oh my god I've got to say this I've got to say this is gonna be so awkward I don't know what to say I don't know what to say so then he just came out with it and then afterwards it's probably like, oh my goodness I had a whole intro that was planned but he is a politician talking to representatives of another nation and he William and Kate you know there's also been like a photograph of Kate looking at the ground looking slightly sad everyone's like oh my god look how hurt she is and that was a fraction of a second where she looked at the ground do you do you smile when you look at the ground no I'm gonna say it set the day off again for really sort of a bad start and that is not the fault of anyone of of the Prime Minister of Jamaica or or the Cambridges again it keeps me back to that kind of Lisa Hannah thing of where a a sensible topic which is a government official saying that this is the aim of his government one day, was once again completely overshadowed by the press and social media going either like, what a horrible man for upsetting the Cambridges, or like, gosh, William McKay had been in this country for one day and it's so bad they're becoming a republic. Like, mm-hmm. no, that's not what happened. And it, unlike the gate, this sort offence of thing, where I think that it was unfortunately taken out of context, but actually there there are things that they could have done differently. I feel like with this, like literally they just stood there and said nothing. Like there was, what what could they have done differently that would have made this not controversial? So the final engagement of the day was kind of the moment people had been waiting for, sort of, um, which was the reception with the from the governor general. Uh, where William gave his speech where he talked about slavery and uh, you know as we mentioned earlier you know it wasn't an apology but it was sort of an acknowledgement that slavery is bad and Britain was involved in slavery Um, so I think there were a lot of people who were disappointed um, and I understand that but I also think as we said earlier, you know, he was not going to do an apology without the government's approval and the government are not going to approve that right now. So I don't know what I I wasn't expecting anything more than that. The coverage for the next day, because this was obviously the evening engagement, was all covered with William doesn't apologise about being a slave keeper, essentially. <laughs> I was like, oh, not again, not another one. Yeah, it was just like a like a domino effect once one went they all kind of went <laughs> um and then day six the next day was the the Cambridge's last day in Jamaica before 
uh, headed off to the buffers. Um, and they started with a commissioning parade or a passing out parade for um, the Caribbean Military Academy. Um, and then they, they took a picture in a car, um, a military car, inspecting the troops as they went down, um, which is something that every royal does when they go in a military car. Lots of politicians do, lots of general visitors do this, military people. It's a thing that happens. And the headline was colonialism. <laughs> and at this point, I think I was giving up. That's <laughs> I didn't like this engagement very much um, because I don't really like military engagements in general, all in sort of white with the Jeep. It kind of immediately to me, it did feel very much like a like the early seasons of The Crown. Yeah, it looked like Prince uh, Prince Philip, Matt Smith as Prince Philip in The Crown. And I can't unsee that. Definitely. And I so I immediately was like, oh, this is slightly old fashioned. But then I did see some pictures online that were like, actually, this is just what happens in the military. And so maybe it's just the military that's old fashioned. Um. But like, they went in the car that the Queen and Prince Philip had been in on their visit to Jamaica back in the 50s. Um, and I get they were going for the picture. So you could do those, you know, pictures of like, this is the Queen and Philip. This is Kate and Will. Look, it's the same. And all big family, warm, fuzzy feeling thing. Now, obviously, that didn't come across. And I feel like it might have come across more in either of the other two countries, in Belize or the Bahamas, but because the Jamaican tour had come had started so poorly in terms of its sort of public perception of it, that carried on. And at this point, everyone knew this wasn't going to go down well, quite frankly. But I don't think there was a way of William and Catherine going to the people of Jamaica and going, oh, I know you've offered us to do this, but we think it's going to look really bad. So do you mind if we don't? So I think at this point, they were kind of stuck in knowing they had to do it. it, it everyone knew it was going to be a bad moment. Um, so, yeah, they, they then left Jamaica um, um, and arrived in the Bahamas. Um, and it suddenly felt straight back to royal tours. And the, the little girl who gave them the flowers, Ania, she said afterwards that, um, you know, the Duchess of Cambridge calls me pretty or beautiful and no one can bully me anymore. And it, that was the moment of the tour that I thought, kind of reminded me of those moments of like why why we do send royals on tours because for that for that little girl for Ania that is going to ha that has had a positive impact on her life that wouldn't have happened really with anyone else and I think I mean it's it's such a small moment but that was like my little highlight of the tour is like that moment there and then um day seven so their their first full day in the in the Belize in the Bahamas actually they started in a school, so they had that school engagement in Jamaica, and they had another one here, um, Sybil Strachan Primary School, and Kate did another speech, and that threw me, because you never give two speeches on one tour, but this time she did, and that was a big deal, um, and it had a really sort of celebratory vibe, like there were balloons out, the children did a guard of honour, and the Cambridge went into a lesson, and it felt like an engagement that they would do in a school in the UK, just in the Bahamas. It was a very bland speech, but it was such a, such a, but there were balloons, like it was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it takes, balloons. And like there were moments that I, I think again contributed to why this tour felt slightly differently. Like one of the children presented them with a painting of the Queen um, that she'd done. So it kind of felt like more like what the purpose of the tour was actually supposed to be about, which was the, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. But without straying into kind of like, isn't the Queen great? You should all keep her around. 
um, because it was coming from the students themselves rather than from Kate and William. Um, and from that, they went on to the, the Parliament Square um, for the for the Junkanoo, um, like an African-inspired parade that is you know, a celebratory thing that happens and hasn't happened because of COVID. There'd, there'd been a rumour before that they were going to turn up in traditional Junkanoo dress. And as soon as I saw that, my blood just kind of like chilled because I was like, please don't do that. That is going to be an absolute disaster. But they didn't. And like, that's a shame if the people of the Bahamas wanted William and Kate to wear this outfit or wanted them to put on a hat or whatever, um, that they they weren't able to do that. But it probably was just given how the rest of the tour went. It probably was the right decision. Um, and then that day ended with um, a reception given by the governor general. Um, I mean, they arrived holding hands, which is quite rare for them. To me, I, maybe they were just holding hands. Maybe I'm reading into a moment that wasn't actually there. But because it's so rare for them, I do feel like they both knew this was going to be an, a difficult thing. Well, it kind of felt like William gave his very generic speech that he'd given in all three countries and then had secretly snuck a bit on the end where he said essentially like you need to make your own decision and he ended with relationships change friendships endure it definitely felt as soon as I read it I was like that was added on later I thought it was the right decision and I do think that the relationships evolve friendships endure line was a nicely written one I think that it's one of those situations where you know it was never going to please everybody um, and then they went to Dundas. Uh, I'm terrible at the pronunciation of these things. Um, <laughs> and they participated or they uh, took part in a fish fry or they visited the fish fries. Um, and they, I will have to, I, Kate was the hero of this. She is, <laughs> she is so game. Like she was trying all the local delicacies. William with his soft English stomach can't handle anything slightly spicy uh can't handle trying different foods where she's just so game yeah it felt it felt so warm and there were so many people there and everyone seemed to be having a good time and it it felt like a kind of a mirror to almost like the the cocoa farm engagement from the start of the tour so and then I suppose the last thing to comment on in terms of the uh, the tour is that William released a very unusual statement um so essentially it was kind of a reflective thing. And he said that in Belize, Jamaica and the Bahamas, their, their future is for the people to decide upon. Um, and they said that they are committed to service, um, but for us, that's not telling people what to do. Uh, and then they kind of went on to say, um, who the Commonwealth chooses to lead its family in the future isn't what is on my mind. What matters to us is the potential the Commonwealth family has to create a better future for the people who form it. None of the things that were in that statement are new to me or new to anyone. But what it felt like was just making things that we already knew explicit. And it kind of reminded me of, he did a speech a few years ago, which I really loved, where he talked about his social media project that he did. He worked with like some social media companies to try and um, stop online bullying. And he gave this speech to a room full of social media executives where he basically was like, I'm going to be honest with you, this, this project didn't work and people weren't as cooperative as I thought they would be. We didn't handle this thing right. We didn't. And it felt like it was very rare to hear a royal say, actually, we tried and we, were, we had the best intentions, but this thing didn't really work out. And it kind of gave me that vibes because it felt like he was saying, 
we know that this did not go fantastically well, um, but our job is to listen to you and not to tell you what to do. And we will genuinely accept whatever result comes out. You know, as, we, as Charles did in Barbados when they left, um, they will sort of accept it. It was a very, I don't say calculated because it sounds bad, but a calculated decision to release it at the end of the tour. And it clearly, when they set off on the tour, they don't think they had a plan to release a statement at the end of it. I saw someone being like, oh, this will be Williams. Um, like, I, uh, like the Queen's always, she said, I pledge to serve you for my whole life. And I don't think it's quite that level, but I think this is going to be a speech that, or a statement at least, that when King William happens and people look back, they'll go, well, this was like a big statesman moment. It kind of reminded me of the, spe- of the statement that Prince Daniel and Crown Princess Victoria put out in that it might not make anybody or make certain people feel any better about William and Kate. They might not like them anymore. They might not want to be a, a republic any less, but it was a chance for them to say what they feel on the record. And now what people do with that information is kind of their choice. But I think that the reason that I feel like something like this, even if it had been planned, which it very clearly wasn't, and the reason I think those couldn't have come earlier is that it would have kind of undermined his entire point. His point is that he has spent this time listening and these are his reflections. So rather than him bulldozing in, he was emphasising the opportunity to listen and reflect. It, the tour itself, and I'm going to go out and say, was not their best tour. No. <laughs> and it's frustrating because it could have been a brilliant tour. And I think that the strongest moments of the tour, quite almost sadly, was William's statement right at the end when they were leaving because it's the thing from the tour that people will take away. So thank you for joining us for um, what was a very meaty episode this week. Uh, So thank you for listening and goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. 